1: This is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley, bringing the best of my Times Radio show. You can listen Monday to Friday, 10 till 1, on your DAB radio, on your smart speaker, or download the Times Radio app so you can take us with you wherever you go. Many thanks to the Stories of Our Times team yesterday for the bonus episode, but we're back in full effect today. Really, really fascinating conversation coming up as our big thing today. Raphael Bear has been a political journalist, I think, for even longer than me. But in the middle of all of the Brexit shenanigans when the whole of politics seemed to be blowing up he suffered a heart attack he's now written a book on uh, the survivor's guide to uh, british politics both uh, his own physical as well as mental health really fascinating chat coming up with him in just a moment but first as ever on a tuesday it's time for this pair in a world of politics
2: without the boring bits get ready for blockbuster debate on times radio one is the wise voice of experience. The other, the young genius learning from the master. Together, they are Finkelstein and Zeffman. Daniel Finkelstein and Henry Zeffman on Times
0: Radio.
1: Go on, then, who wants to. What's this? What's this theme from? The black faces all around. Oh, the Sweeney. The Sweeneys, correct. Any idea about that, Henry?
3: No, I've
2: seen Sweeney Todd.
3: No. <laughs> yeah, Henry will then tell us that uh, that actually Dennis Waterman once endorsed the Liberal Democrats.
2: <laughs> oh, Dennis Waterman! I'm a big
1: fan of new tricks. There you go. Anyway, sorry, that's <laughs> my Dennis Waterman. <laughs> well, I think the Sweeney's like one of those things that everyone knows about but nobody actually watched. Or was much too young to watch? We were talking about this in the office earlier. Did you mm. actually watch the Swedish Yeah, Amazon? I'm
3: actually 60, so yes. <laughs> and uh, I did, but although it was at the leading edge, so I it was just slightly old But I remember sort of thinking it was slightly old for me. And then, uh, but, you know, I I preferred Minder, or actually Minder,
1: as I used to call it, when I first saw the posters. <laughs> very good, very good. Right, uh, let's get on and focus uh, with uh, John Thor and Dennis Waterman of The Times. Uh, like the big story. I mean, Henry's, we've got so many real scoops to get through this morning. Uh, let's start with this one and the fact he's still waiting.
0: Wherever you go, whatever you do, I will be right here waiting for. So-
2: Sue Gray. So Henry, the wait goes on. That's right. Um, Keir Starmer sacked his last Chief of Staff in October, uh, it's now May, and um, could be up to a year more before Keir Starmer can have Sue Gray as his Chief of Staff. Um, what's happening today is distinct from the sort of moment of truth for Sue Gray and Keir Starmer, but is very important nevertheless. What we're going to get in Parliament later is Jeremy Quinn, a Cabinet Minister, announcing the outcome of a sort of internal civil service probe into whether Sue Gray broke the civil service code by secretly having job interviews with, with Labour, uh, to which the answer, to no one's surprise, is, is going to be yes. Crucially, that is going to form the basis of the government's submission to the Advisory Committee on Business of note, or rather a gardening leave period, for Sue Gray to work before she can start as Keir Starmer's Chief of Staff. And we are told, we've reported, that the government is likely to ask for um, a gardening leave period of at least a year. Now, bear in mind that Keir Starmer wants Sue Gray to run his transition planning. Um, I think a break of that long is sufficiently long that Sue Gray would not actually be able to do the job that Keir Starmer has asked her to do. So where does that leave him? Uh, Well, I think it leaves him with two options. I think one is to say, and, you know, he said to this point he will follow ACOBA's recommendations. Um, I think he would have two options. One is to reverse on that and say, uh, and we can get into some of the debates around how the government's behaved over this, but he could say, look, ministers ignore ACOBA all the time. You know, they let uh, people who have held sensitive jobs, be they ministerial jobs or Whitehall jobs, go and pick up, Um, jobs which could give uh, a new company commercial benefit within months. It is ridiculous for Sue Gray to be made to wait a matter of years just to spare the Conservatives' blushes. That's an argument he could make. Right, or wrongly. Or he could say, yeah, okay, fair enough. Um, That's very annoying. Um, But, you know, I'm going to press ahead with a different Chief of Staff because unlike the Conservatives, Mm. he might argue, uh, I always follow the rules and I said I'd stick by the recommendation and therefore I do. We should say, by the way, a COBA may well turn round and say to the government... You are being ridiculous. We exist to stop um, government knowledge being used for commercial benefit. We don't exist to stop government knowledge or government experience being used for the benefit of political parties.
3: I remember watching a film with Winona Ryder when she's asked what the meaning of irony is, and I think she should have just used this. (laughs) Because... So, obviously, what's happening to Sue Gray is what Keir Starmer and Sue Gray would do to Sue Gray uh, if they were in charge. Um, But it's also not what the Conservatives would do to Sue Gray if they were in charge, as it were, uh, and Sue Gray was one of theirs. Um, So it's replete with irony. I I would say a number of things. First of all, um, I don't think there's any political gain to be for the Conservative Party. um, And given that, I think it's quite likely the Labour Party will win the... uh, election and you will need somebody to be in charge of transition I think it's a bit of a shame if these rules end up ruling Sue Gray out on the other hand uh, I I felt that it did damage the civil service for her to move in the way that she did, Uh, i I understood exactly why why she wanted it. I understood exactly why Keir Starmer wanted it, um, and I wasn't scandalised by it. But I do think it probably did damage the civil service and I, at a at a sensitive moment, and it was therefore not a great thing to happen. So it's all a bit of a mess. Is the is the is the truth of it? Um, I would note this that Keir Starmer hasn't done badly uh,
1: between uh, announcing this and now. So maybe he doesn't need a chief of staff. I mean, ironically, if he'd had the advice of Sue Gray to begin with, she could have advised on how better to handle this. Because it, it would have been better, really, wouldn't it, Henry, if he'd have just got another Chief of Staff and then appointed her Cabinet
2: Secretary if he becomes Prime Minister. But as I understand it, Sue Gray, who has been the guardian of these rules for hmm. some time, um, was completely taken aback that these rules were invoked. She, It had not, I'm told, occurred to her that a Cobra might be invoked. She was mindful of the precedent, and it's worth pointing out, that the last two leaders of opposition to go from being leader of opposition to Prime Minister, i.e. Tony Blair and David Cameron, both had as chiefs of staff senior civil servants who had left the civil service immediately before, albeit in very different jobs and much less immediately controversial jobs. But nevertheless, Jonathan Powell and Ed Llewellyn both left the civil service to to go and be their chiefs of staff. Um, So that is why we get into um, what Oliver Wright wrote about in The Times... Uh, yesterday, which is this question of whether Simon Case, the cabinet secretary, is particularly uh, pushing this? Um, I think the quote given to Ollie was that was that uh, he's pushing a vendetta against Sue Gray, and it is. I mean, look, I obviously can't can't um, adjudicate on that. It is worth noting that, as we reported at the time. The reason Sue Gray decided she was done with Whitehall after more than 30 years, after joining straight from school and she's still there at the age of 65, was because Kemi Badenot wanted to make her permanent secretary at the Department for Business and Trade and Simon Case blocked it. So I do think, and, and we know that Sue Gray was quite critical. Actually, I mean, the Johnsonites completely wrong. She wasn't that critical of Boris Johnson in the Partygate report. If anything, it, it went a bit soft on him. But she was very critical of Simon Case and the culture. Yeah, yeah. So, maybe Simon Case was right, though. Well, I exactly. mean, After all, she went to work, uh, having applied for that job, then went
3: to work for Keir Starmer in a way that may have broken the rules. So possibly so, so, he's right. So, so I would say this, you know, we've got, there are other stories that sort of say Simon Case doesn't stick up for the civil service enough and he's weak leadership and then uh then there's this other story saying he's uh, you know overdoing it um you know you can't really have both of those things i i my feeling was that i i respect you sue gray hugely everyone who's worked with her, i think does i understand entirely why Keir starmer wanted her. i think it's probably good for the country gets that i don't that, think the tories will gain anything out of it but it wasn't good for the civil service which is the one thing that simon case is um you know, is charged with insuring, um, you know, above the actual performance of civil service doing things for the country is, you know, the independence of the civil service against politicians. And it's reasonable that he um, should take a reasonably tough line on things Doesn't like it that.
2: just speak to the fact that there is no trust anywhere in these relationships anymore between the usual channels of government and opposition, between the civil service and the government, but also the civil service and the opposition? I mean, Simon Case, cabinet secretary here, could be the cabinet secretary if Keir Starmer wins the election and, you know, walks through 10 Downing Street for the first time. And, you know, I think after this, mm. uh, especially if Keir Starmer walks through with Sue Gray, his new chief <laughs> of staff. I mean, yeah. I, I, I mean, by the way, but you know, if Sue Gray does end up taking this job, Keir Starmer wants her to lead his access talks with government about what he would do in government. I mean, I can't see Sue Gray and Simon Case having around the table. genial discussions. So you know, it may well be that it just doesn't work on that level. It is a mess.
1: Is Rich, just it? to add to the sense of mess, Rich has just been in touch saying, "Let's not forget, Sue Gray was only involved with the Partygate report because Simon Case was in found... It was himself found to be involved because he was he was yeah. the one doing the investigation originally, and then had to accuse himself.
3: No. gates who it, it is is relevant, obviously because it enhances her profile, but it isn't it isn't directly relevant to this. Yeah. I, I think, on the whole, there probably should be um, a, some sort of gap between people, whether it has been in the past or not, between somebody working in the civil service and somebody working for um, the the uh, the leader of the opposition, particularly when they've been in charge of propriety mm. and ethics, and therefore are in you know have knowledge of a lot of things inside government um but i i, I can't escape the sort of somewhat uncomfortable feeling that for the government um they're, they're trying to create a political issue out of something that will have be of no interest to anybody whatsoever in the country um and it will not create you know all it'll do is be an inconvenience to all the individuals involved
1: undermine their relationships i suspect in the end is there any evidence that Sue Gray would be any good at this job? Or is it just really a bit of a celebrity appointment in and of itself? Because, you know, and actually it's very late in the day to not even have your chief of staff, given that, you know, you know when you talk about David Cameron and Tony Blair, they had very tight, loyal, committed teams by this point. Yeah a year or so. Ed Llewellyn, by the way, had for years been a... You
3: know, he worked in the Conservative Research Department with David Cameron. That's why he appointed him. And uh, um, he was very political to his fingertips. I think Jonathan Powell was too. So the question with Sue Gray is, you know, what is her political uh, touch like? Because that is, you know, Dan Rosenfeld, whom I thought really highly of, who ended up working for Boris Johnson, let's take to one side if you work for Boris Johnson, it always ends in tears, (laughs) whoever you are, however good you are. But... he he, Dan Rosenfield was very good but you know even the perception that people had that he might not know the politics was difficult when you're the chief of staff you're dealing with a lot of party issues a lot of MP issues you know people have got to be prepared to call Jonathan Powell you know Gordon Brown used to didn't talk to him for years walked straight past his desk even though his desk was right outside Tony Blair's office Uh, it's it's you've got to be able to do... And the question whether she can handle that, I, I don't think I'm in... I would say I'm probably not in a position to judge. I just don't know her well
1: enough to well, there's know. there's two things. One, her own experience, them. but also just not being there until very late in the day, that she wasn't there for that row between, I don't know, Jonathan Ashworth and Angela... You know, being schooled in the
2: rows and the tensions and the highs and the lows yeah. and, of that the
3: opposition. That has pluses and minuses, obviously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well,
2: and one of the striking features of Keir Starmer's leadership so far... Um, and you can call this a strength or a weakness, is that he has jettisoned almost the entirety of his first cadre Mm. of advisors, some of his second group as well. He's completely ruthless, but that means he doesn't have that tight unit of... Well, actually, he does, and they still speak to him from their consultancies (laughs) because they lost their jobs with him. Um, So... um, that, that, I think that's a very pertinent point. I think, arguably, you know, the first failure of her political antennae was was this. I mean, if she didn't foresee that this was going to mm. turn into a course celebre of the yeah. sort it, it, it has, then, you know, perhaps she's not as got savvy some, politically. He has you
3: know. got some other good people, like Peter Hyman, for example, who do very experienced uh, people with a lot of political nous. Mm. And so, if they can blend into a team, they may be able to compensate. Yeah for each other's deficiencies. But, you know, I, I definitely think with Keir Starmer, there's a question about how good his own political touch yeah. is. I, I, I say question deliberately. I don't mean that, you know, as a half an answer. I, he's a question over it. And, you know, maybe she isn't, she repeats some of his uh, assets, but also repeats some of it his flaws. It's difficult to tell though
2: that. Well, I remember when it was when it first came out that he was looking for a senior civil servant, or a former senior civil servant, Shadow Cabinet Minister despairingly saying to me, we've already got a senior civil servant as our leader. We don't need one as the <laughs> Chief of Staff.
1: So we've talked all about Simon Case and the Tories and Sue Gray and all of that, but Kirsten has got uh, other problems, as Henry revealed in The Times today. He's dropping one of his last pledges uh, that survived from his leadership bid uh, when he first became leader. What... Three years ago, uh, this was Keir Starmer on uh, the BBC's Today programme. This time, I'm talking about tuition fees. Well, uh, I think we are going to set out a fairer solution, and Justin, so you but, know, but but it I, won't be the it
2: won't be the abandoning of tuition fees, will it?
1: Well, we are likely to move on from that um, commitment because right. we do find ourselves in a different financial situation. But I, I, I don't want that to be read as us accepting for a moment that the current system is fair. Uh, but, 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 but there's a bit of that, Henry. Uh, explain what's going on in, uh, in this discussion about tuition fees. It was one of the big pledges, most eye-catching popular pledges of, of
2: Jeremy Corbyn's efforts in two elections. It was, but crucially, it was also one of the ten pledges that Keir Starmer made in his leadership election in 2020. I think, you know, I think you can give a new leader an uh, enormous amount of leeway in terms of jettisoning previous leaders' general election manifestos, but I think their own leadership manifesto Uh, it becomes a bit trickier. I mean, Starmer has already ditched uh, others of the pledges. And look, we can see very clearly what's going on here. He calculated that uh, in order to win the leadership, he had to run from uh, the soft left of the party, i.e. a bit to the right of Jeremy Corbyn, but not too much to the right of Jeremy Corbyn, given where the party membership was then. And he then, in office, was determined to change the Labour Party and, you know, more crudely, move it towards the centre. Um, that has benefited him in some ways, but I do think, you know, there is this accumulating sense which the Conservatives will try to exploit at the general election, which is, uh, if he doesn't follow his own pledges from his leadership election, how can he convince the country that he will follow his own pledges from a general election?
1: How much of a problem is this? Because everyone says, Danny, so, this is what you do when you want to, want to be the leadership leader. So my leader. reaction to hit this,
3: to, to this uh, announcement is Good. Every time someone decides to abandon a position I think foolish and unrealistic, move (laughs) closer to a position, i.e. mine, um, which I regard as more uh, realistic and better, I congratulate them on the move. Um, And that's my first reaction. Uh, Undoubtedly, uh, it does raise questions about how much you can trust his move. He just does. Um, you know, throughout his entire political career, Keir Starmer has been somewhat slightly to the left of every other leader and then slightly to the right of Jeremy Corbyn because Jeremy Corbyn was so on the left. He has shifted his position entirely during the period of his leadership. I welcome that wholly. Uh, I like Keir Starmer as a person and I therefore want to believe it, but there's no question that his career of saying different things does raise a question over how authentic this move is. However, let's give him the benefit of it being authentic. It's a good thing that he's not promising to do something that I think would be very difficult to realistically would cost too much money isn't the right place to spend all that money if you were going to do it um, and would in my view probably achieve the opposite in terms of access
1: to universities that he proposes so if he's going to come up with something better you'll have me saying well done and actually the lessons of the history like if you look at David Cameron when he promised to leave the EPP the I can't remember, the European People's Party and yeah. you know he made that promise during a leadership yes. election he didn't really believe in it and he was stuck with it after yeah
3: that. so one of the bombs in politics are politicians doing what they said they would right <laughs> um, and um, uh, having run the uh, policy office of the leader of the opposition uh, for a period. And I know that we had fewer people working that than the government had working on carpet regulation. Um, We're covering every subject. I'm very suspicious of pledges you make in opposition that you you can't cost properly. uh, It's difficult to think through in multi-dimensions with other policies. So I'm for more statements of direction, fewer uh, policy commitments and the fewer policy commitments, obviously, I'd like them to be as close as possible to things I think are a good idea, <laughs> which this is. But I, but I do that. They, there has to be a question. Obviously, there does of who Keir Starmer really is. Is he as he presented himself in the leadership campaign? You know, um, to the left, um, somewhere between Ed Miliband and Jeremy Corbyn, or is he the position that he takes now, which is somewhere between Gordon Brown and Tony Blair? It's a completely different political position which one does he is the real him does he really mean Um, that is obviously a legitimate question correct
1: to ask Daniel Finkelstein and Henry Zeffman of course you can read the stories we were discussing mostly Henry's stories just hit the link in the podcast description and get yourself a Times subscription go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Redbox up next Raphael Bear's guide to surviving politics
0: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.
1: You're listening to the Redbox Podcast now. It's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio.
0: Yeah, today we're talking about
1: how to stay engaged with politics without it making you sad or cross or even ill. I'm joined in the studio today by Raphael Vett. He's written a book called Politics, A Survivor's Guide. And when he says "survivor," he really means it, because the political rollercoaster at Westminster and the years that followed the Brexit referendum led to, or well, the very least, coincided with him having a heart attack. He joins me now. You're much better.
4: I am. I'm much better now. Much healthier, and I'd like to think I have a healthier way of engaging with politics. I should specify. I don't actually. British politics of literally causing my heart attack because that would let all the smoking and the eating of pastries that I did <laughs> for many years off the hook uh, and I think they definitely need some of the blame but it, it, what happened was uh, I sort of allowed myself to get to t- tie myself in terrible knots of rage and frustration as a lot of people did and Matt you were there too you remember what it was like and we spoke to MPs and journalists and special advisors uh, all of whom in that toxic period you know 2016 to 2019 felt the same Brexit derangement syndrome, we called it, the sense that the whole thing was falling apart. And because I had the advantage of a long period of recuperation after a very serious heart attack... I set my mind to thinking about how we'd got into that state and whether there was a way of doing politics that was a bit better than that. And then, because I also had a bit of time on my hands during the pandemic, uh, I read a book about it. So let's go, I mean, presumably
1: the smoking and the pastries were probably not unconnected to what was going on in politics. I mean, I think it's fair to say there was a lot of late nights, crap food... Maybe occasional drinks, uh, uh, d- waiting for
4: late-night votes and all that sort of stuff. Well, yeah, the waiting yeah, for late-night votes... probably late was great vote. for anyone's health. Yeah, I mean, well, that, that waiting for late-night late votes, that's the one thing that really... That, that that could trigger me, actually, thinking about that, sitting there looking at the cursor blinking on a blank screen. Thinking, Wondering oh, what's happening to the Malthouse compromise. and oh, sending messages to everyone you know, all the MPs saying, how's it looking, what's going on? And, of course, no-one knows. And it's going to be sort of 318 to 296 or whatever it was in these things. And meanwhile, we were getting... Incredibly wound up, but also wound up absolutely in the weeds of parliamentary procedure completely failing to take account of actually the bigger picture and what was going on, what it looked like outside to the rest of the country. And that exercise in perspective, understanding that uh, as someone once said, you know, to understand what's going on in politics, you should ask someone who doesn't know what's going on in politics because they actually probably have a better sense of the real contours of the country and the culture and the mood than those of us who were sort of in the, in the court, in the Palace of Westminster being courtiers instead of understanding the real country. We'll dig more into the politics in a minute, but just on your your heart attack, reading your books, you're a bit older
1: than me, but not that much older than when it actually happened to you. And the worst of all, you thought you were doing the
4: right, you were literally jogging. You thought you were doing the right thing. (laughs) Well, yeah, I, was, well, I wasn't jogging very fast. So I could go, go a bit faster now. Um, yes, no, well, the thing is, for years, and I don't want to sort of extrapolate the whole thing into a vast extended metaphor where my health becomes the sort of the analysis of British politics, but I was in denial for a long time because I would go running and experience this burning, tight feeling in my chest, which I interpreted as being middle-aged, uh, and I now understand to have been chronic angina. And then one day, the... the what I'd come to describe as in my head as that chest feeling, uh, detonated behind my ribs, and uh, I, relatively quickly, not immediately, because at first I thought I can't possibly be having heart attack because that'd be very inconvenient. That's what happens to other people, and I've got people coming out for dinner later, so you know <laughs> this, is, it's far too inconvenient. The salmon's practically in the oven, can't be having heart attack. Then I realised it was, uh, uh, and again, it sort of subsequently, and not wanting to labour the, the metaphor too much, I thought, well, yeah, there are all these sort of you can. Be looking at a system, you can be experiencing pain, obstruction, something's clearly not working. But if you've got an incentive, if you're invested in not really confronting that, not not wanting to admit to yourself that things are in terrible shape, you can keep blundering on and on until you reach the critical point where the problem forces itself up into your face, which is what happened to me. So are you now fully recovered from
1: the heart attack
4: and from the impact of British politics? Um, I have... With the help of uh, a lot of medication uh, and uh, some stents in my arteries, which are a brilliant piece of technology, a uh, hooray for progress, uh, I, my heart is in pretty good shape. I have to be careful what I do. Uh, and in terms of the politics, interestingly, it was easier immediately afterwards because there was this period of a, a few months when... I was almost afraid to, I mean, I didn't want to watch par- uh, Prime Minister's Questions because I thought it, it would just sort of trigger some sense of anxiety. I mean, I did, I, I, I described in the book actually shortly afterwards, I went to watch my daughter play football uh, in an important cup final and it went to penalties and I had to leave the stadium because the sort of the anxiety was sort of sucking the air out of my lungs and I thought, if I watch PMQs, is it going to do the same thing? But actually, when I Luckily did... it. now it's really boring. Well, yeah, it's, yeah. exactly. Fun. But then it was Boris Johnson and and uh, it was all the, the, the prospect that I could get find myself being quite sort of enervated by it all again was quite high. But actually, what struck me most was how sort of small it was and how absurd some of it is relative to what is actually facing the country and what the, the problems are. Um, actually, what's been harder. So that perspective was sort of easy to retain in the immediate aftermath of the crisis. And what's harder is as time goes on and... I, I sort of go back to my old ways, come out of the pandemic, going into Westminster, doing the usual job. The, the sort of that, that perspective, rather than it being something that I have with me all the time, is something I have sort of in a drawer somewhere and I have to remember to go and get it out of the drawer, look at it and go, oh yes, don't forget that you got into this state and that there is some lessons here for how you should be sort of dealing with, with politics. Okay, let's, um, let's pick our way through
1: then, your, your sort of personal relationship and engagement with politics, which uh, starts by uh, being taken to a rally, an SDP rally, you know how to live, uh, after it was formed in 1981. So let's take, this is a clip of Shirley Williams. The point about this new party, and yes, you've seen our faces before, the point about this new party is that it is a party which for the first time in Britain, in the period since the war is breaking with any of the major interest groups and trying to put the interests of the country first ahead of those other interests.
0: So
4: this is sort of your birth as a centrist dad? Absolutely. This is pure <laughs> centrism, the original centrism, before it was sort of went commercial, before it went... Um, no, the, well, actually, it was very briefly very commercial, wasn't it, in the early 80s? I mean, what you know what? That's one poll that showed the SDP. They were on sort of 50%. It yeah. you know? didn't last that long. But no, so uh, I, I describe that because, uh, I mean, I, I'm come from an immigrant family. Uh, my parents were white South African. Uh, they left South Africa in protest against apartheid and we were raised uh, raised in, in Finchley in Margaret Thatcher's constituency. Um, but really, like a lot of first-generation immigrants, uh, our understanding, my understanding of politics was all to do with things that were happening thousands of miles away. My, you know, when, when the news came on, we wouldn't pay that much attention to British politics, but if it was about South Africa, the state of emergency, uh, the volume would go up, we'd be told to shut up and pay attention. So my... So my my political compass was all skewed. I didn't really know much about what was going on in Britain. And then, for reasons I'm still not quite clear, I think, you know, my dad in particular just... In despair at what happened to, to Labour. I mean, the Labour Party was anti-apartheid, so mm. that was sort of where we, our natural orientation would be. But, but also the capture of Labour by the militant tendency uh, and the, the sort of hard left uh, had put off my sort of middle-class parents who didn't want any trouble. Uh, and It's really interesting
1: to... that because that, I think that seems to be a tr- like a, a thread that runs through a lot of, regardless of where they come from, People who fled somewhere, coming to the UK, sort of getting repelled by extremes from both sides. Yeah, sort I think of wanting a, a more sort of centrist, quieter life.
4: Yeah, I think certainly if you have, I mean, I, I, I wouldn't aggrandize our situation to describe us as refugees, although a generation yeah. back, because my grandparents uh, left uh, Lithuania, they fled pogroms and you know, left when on one side, uh, left a little bit later to get away from the Nazis. Um, so they, they, I think they mm. definitely count as refugees. But that feeds this family mythology of you're know, starting a new life somewhere and you, you basically don't want any trouble. Mm. Uh, you, you, want to sort of be, you want politics that leaves you alone. Uh, and there's a word that I use in the book, there's a sort of subchapter which I actually have called mushugas, which is this, is this Yiddish word that basically it's, loosely translates as madness. But you know, mushugas is this sort of really in-your-face Finger prodding in the solar plexus, getting too close to you in the kitchen at a party, hectoring you—that kind of politics. So, and and I think there, particularly in the age of social media, uh, and you know where we had that immense polarisation, that very toxic um, thing that has settled down a bit now, but is still there. I think a lot of people uh, we we lost sight of a kind of a quiet middle of British politics that doesn't want isn't apathetic. They don't want to completely switch off and disengage, but they just don't want kind of Meshuggahna politics, to use the Yiddish word. They don't want it I'm glad to up you, in your face. I'm
1: glad that you you, you did the pronunciation <laughs> on that rather than me, uh, me having to tackle it. So you get from the from the SDP, and then you sort of grow up 80s, 90s, and you talk a lot in the book about the sort of, the power of what happened with New Labour, Tony Blair, Cool Britannia, uh, which is a good excuse to listen to Noel Gallagher at the Brits in 1996.
0: There are seven people... In this room tonight, we are giving a little bit of hope to young people in this country. That is me, our kid, Bonehead, Quigsie, Alan White, Alan McGee, and Tony Blair. And if you'd all got anything about you, you get out there and you say Tony Blair's hand, man, is a man. Power to the people.
4: Yeah, I was always a bit of a blur man myself to be well, honest, yeah. but yeah.
1: I uh, it's interesting, I wonder what Noel Gallagher thinks about that now. I, I wonder if he remembers it. <laughs> <laughs>
4: <laughs> I'm going to guess maybe Possibly maybe not. his recollection might be a bit hazy might for bit reasons hazy that, that, probably, yeah. that maybe his cardiologist would warn him about now. So, so tell us then about, uh, aside
1: from the, the... Let's not get bogged down in blur and blur, uh, blur and, um, blur and oasis. That's an entirely different conversation. Um, the, the power of that, that new Labour moment, and the fact it still
4: hangs over politics now. Yeah, so it's interesting, isn't it? Because, uh, and, and the way I sort of get into this in the book is by... It's a sort of a mere culpa in terms of thinking... Uh, that because, you know, I'd come from this, you know, broadly what we now think of as a centrist position uh, and uh, come of age, been at university in the 90s, where I was absolutely taken for granted that, you know, the Tories were awful and everyone wanted to get them out. My generation, or at least I imagined, I was in the sort of liberal 20-something milieu where it seemed completely self-evident that the Tories were on the way out. And um, it, it felt as if politics you know, for the first time in my life, really, uh, was completely aligned with all of my natural cultural inc- inclinations. And in the bigger picture, you have this situation, the Cold War's ended, uh, so uh, the economy is growing, uh, there's what they call a sort of peace dividend, so there's budget available, you know, you can take it away from the defence budget, basically, and spend it on all sorts of other nice things. Uh, the, the sort of globalisation is really ramping up into its pomp. And... Looking back, I mean, it was a tremendous time to have been young. I was in London, cool Britannia. It was there might be better times to have had, you know, be single with some money in your pocket, an okay job, be able to afford to rent somewhere in central London and have a whale of a time. But I can't really think what they might have been historically. I mean, it was an, and I thought that was normal, and I think a lot of people did, and and thought that this is now that politics is now sort of solved. Uh, and that engendered a, a, a huge complacency about where the normal and natural parameters of of decent political discourse are and and what we could expect politics to generally feel like for a long time. And it was only really or well, a couple of things that sort of shook me out of that. One was going and living abroad as a foreign correspondent and seeing a very different perspective on, on politics as in Moscow uh, and other parts of Eastern Europe. Uh, and then the other one, you know, a realisation that came far too late was going back to what we were saying a moment ago about sort of 2016, 17, 18, mm. 19, realising that actually th- I'd had my back turned to, you know, what was actually going on in a lot of the country and what a lot of people really felt was going on in politics and what they really thought of the people that I thought were sort of decent public servants just getting on with governing the country.
1: Well, that does bring us on to, I mean, obviously, the new Labour years ultimately ended with the, uh, with the financial crash. Which probably then, you know, you can follow the thread right through then, to the EU referendum in 2016. And this is Theresa May speaking after she became uh, Prime Minister at her first Tory conference in 2016.
4: Today, too many people in positions of power behave as though they have more in common with international elites than with the people down the road, the people they employ, the people they pass on the street. But if you believe you're a citizen
3: of the world, you're a citizen of nowhere... You don't understand what the very word citizenship
4: means. You slightly winced then when she said citizen of nowhere. I did, I winced, and I remember watching that speech I was in Birmingham, and I winced at the time. And one of the reasons I winced then and still do is because immediately when I heard Citizen of Nowhere, the image that the, the, the sort of the, the phrase, the concept that came into my mind uh, was rootless cosmopolitan uh, and also globalist. And, and these are essentially. Uh, these are anti-Semitic mm. sort of code words that they have go back through history. You know, a, rootless cosmopolitan was the what, term that Stalin used to describe Jews who sort of couldn't be trusted because they were disloyal to the Soviet project. Uh, um, but the Nazis used similar terms. Now, I'm not for a moment suggesting that Theresa May was in, was consciously or even in any way belonging to that kind of tradition. That's a, it's a terribly glib thing to do to try and you sort of you've lost any political credibility in the political argument when you start saying everyone's like Stalin or Hitler. That's not at all what I'm saying. But there was a tin-earedness to that, was a failure to even that she didn't recognise some of the connotations of saying, because people might have had perfectly valid reasons for voting Remain. I mean, it's not its not probably going to come as a surprise to many people listening to this, that I voted Remain and felt very strongly about it. Although I recognised that, you know, there was a, there was a democratic reason to to, to enact um, what happened with the referendum result. But to suggest that 48% of people uh, had effectively disqualified themselves from the notion of citizenship of a place because of this sort of association that she was drawing with a sort of global elite, it, it was a incredibly, I mean, yeah, tin and crass and actually felt quite cruel to a lot of people. And it's Did interesting, I had a, I remember saying to, before that speech, that summer, I had a conversation with someone in Number 10, uh, an advisor to Theresa May, saying, that, you know, sort of leave one, I get it, um, but there's a lot of bad blood out there, and there's a lot of people, and they're getting told to sort of get back where they came, where you come from, they're getting sort of racist abuse in the street. There's a feeling that a, sort, a tacit license has been issued to a lot of people to say things, uh, na- very nationalistic, racist things that... that They feel they've got permission to say in the way they didn't before the 23rd of June. And it wouldn't necessarily hurt if the Prime Minister... Call that out a little bit, and you could bring some people together if you do that. And it's as if, you know, yes, you've, you've marched, we're marching out of the EU, but there's a feeling that someone's sort of trodden on something on their way in, and you maybe everyone just sniff their shoes a little bit and check you're not dragging some slightly unpleasant politics along with this. <laughs> and I was told by this advisor, Theresa May, well, she can't possibly say that because she voted remain. And I, I do wonder whether that, that,
1: the sort of trying so hard to prove she was now on the side of leavers. Meant that she overreached in a way that if a Lever would become prime minister, they w- they probably would have worked harder to win over remainers. Although that actually, that isn't necessarily what happened with Boris Johnson. Well, that,
4: but by the time Boris Johnson became prime minister, we'd got into a different got, sort of yeah. zone of of you know, the the po- it was the sort of Western Front. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Twenty, you know, four years later, where it's just mud in between. There's no no man's land and just trenches and people shooting at each other. But I think you're right. I think Theresa May. Was so determined to scrub every last residue of remainishness of her, or from her skin, that she just didn't, she didn't feel she had the bandwidth yeah. to, to, to do that reconciliation.
1: Right, let's move on. There, as we we're talking about Boris Johnson, and British politics became, in those years of you it to the Somme, is more and more bogged down, uh, um, and nobody knows what to do about it. Um, and of course, Boris Johnson then becomes uh, leader of the Conservative Party and Prime Minister then immediately tried to break the Brexit deadlock by proroguing Parliament, an act which was then ruled unlawful. Here is Baroness Hell, President of the Supreme Court.
4: But it is quite clear that the prorogation is not a proceeding in Parliament. It takes place in the House of Lords Chamber, in the presence of members of both houses, but it is not their decision. It is something which has been imposed upon them from outside. It is not something on which members can speak or vote. It is not the core or essential business of Parliament which the Bill of Rights protects. Quite the reverse. It brings that core or essential business to an end.
1: I'm getting horrible flashbacks just listening to that. Triggered, you're being triggered. I'm being triggered, I'm being triggered. (laughs) Sitting at Labour Party conference in Brighton and every TV in the uh, media room had got it on. Uh, no one was paying any attention to the Labour Party conference watching this. Then everyone just sort of packed up and left and came back to London because, because this
4: extraordinary moment was happening. Parliament was returning because it hadn't been provoked. I mean, it was the most extraordinary thing. Uh, I mean, just in terms of the brazenness of it. At two levels, the brazenness. I and mean, the fact that, I mean, the, the, the Prime Minister would take a power, the prerogative power, it's, it's, it's sort of like taking the the it was then the Queen's crown out of the parliamentary sort of dressing up box and wielding it as a weapon against this political opposition to say, well, I, I, you know, my will is supreme and, I, and this thing has to be done and therefore I'm dissolving Parliament. It's the sort of thing that if it happened in any other country, uh, you, you, you wouldn't, there wouldn't be much debate as to whether or not this was or wasn't a proper fulfilment of, of the sort of democratic institutions. Clearly, it's just a, a, a slightly megalomaniac individual trying to dissolve Parliament because he doesn't won't do what, what he wants. But... You know, it was symptomatic of what had happened in British politics at that time that you know, because an awful lot of people had voted to leave the EU and you know, for various reasons it wasn't happening, I mean, the main reason being it's really, really hard and difficult, um, The you you'd, we'd sort of whipped ourselves up or part of politics had whipped itself up into a kind of... What I describe in the book is sort of Bolshevik revolutionary ethos, where you know the ends justify the means, and actually democracy is not defined as you know we stick by the rules and we make the institutions we've got work. Democracy becomes defined as you know, enacting. The, the, the unitary will of the people, uh, with Boris Johnson as their champion, and I mean that's actually populism, that's not democracy. But I do understand where that, why that emotional urgency. Because actually, the counter argument yeah. is that uh, the, the,
1: quite a lot of what was going on in Parliament was was not terribly democratic. The various attempts by Labour, the Lib Dems, and so on to to delay the whole thing, voting against everything, never voting for anything. Um, and in fact, Boris Johnson and probably Dominic Cummings would think, well, if it was winding you up, it was probably doing
4: the right thing. Well, that's certainly, <laughs> I think there are an awful lot of people who thought, well, look, Parliament has failed. Yeah. Yeah, the, 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 the a referendum mandate uh, is bigger than whatever the mandate is that these MPs are claiming for for they do. I mean, just from a from a factual point of view, in defence of Parliament here, because, you know, and I, I do understand that frustration, but also the reason Britain hadn't left the European Union by that stage is because people who felt, who were very, very pro-Brexit, including Boris Johnson, kept voting against Theresa yeah. May's Brexit. I mean, it was actually, ultimately, it was the pro-Brexit MPs and the Conservative Party that stopped Britain leaving the European Union. That yeah. and, and, you know, for, uh, I mean, Labour MPs, Almost all of them, Lib Dems even, had voted for the triggering of Article 50 and for basically going through the process. But it, there are lots of rabbit holes we can go yeah, down yeah, yeah. here. Essentially, well, do there, was a, there, was a, <laughs> there was a conflict between different conceptions of what democracy was supposed to do at that moment. And Boris Johnson is not interested in the niceties or the protocols of how the system ought to work. Uh, and that was pretty clear from from the choice that he made. So then he wins
1: the election beginning December 2019, wins his majority. You have your heart attack on New Year's Eve. Yes, literally a couple of weeks later. Yeah, and like- now, now you've had this opportunity to sort of stand back. What's your advice for how to consume politics uh,
4: without having a heart attack? <laughs> well, yes, first of all, don't smoke. Um, the, no, uh, in all seriousness, what I, what I would caveat everything with the important observation that it, it, I wouldn't say, that, don't not be angry. Anger is important. You have to feel, it's, yeah, a- anger is one of the ways that you feel sufficiently animated to want to change things. There's a great, I, I quote Philip Roth, the novelist, who says, you know, anger is to make you effective. That's, that's its evolutionary function. But if it doesn't make you effective, then you drop it. And I think that the, the, the distinction I want to draw is between the kind of sense of injustice that motivates you to do something and the incapacitating rage that makes you just want to switch off completely. Uh, and the two sort of big picture thing, you know, things, sort of lessons I draw from that, one is be sure that the anger you're feeling is actually yours, that you know, what you're looking at, you're judging, you're making, you're coming to your own independent conclusion about something is wrong and this thing needs to be fixed. And then you can think what, what would be the, either the vote I cast or the organisation I would join that would then affect the change. That's not the same from as so I'm scrolling through Twitter or I'm watching television, and as some politician of left or right happens on both sides is deliberately stirring a kind of a, a, a provocative cultural pot of rage to get me to feel a strong emotion on one very very partisan side of an argument and for their benefit that's not helping me that's not my anger that I'm feeling that's their anger that they've implanted in me and the other crucial thing i quote my my wife is a maths teacher now, this sounds like a bit of a segue but it's important because i was never great at maths at school but i've learned math, a lot of maths since then <laughs> uh, and the, uh, well, the key formula being, she's always right. But anyway, no, the, uh, there's a, a Hungarian mathematician called Georg Puglia, um said, like, if there's a problem and you can't solve it, somewhere in there, there is a smaller problem that you can solve. Find that. Uh, and that's very true. If it's a big equation or a big kind of geometric shape and, you know, you know one angle, you can work out the next angle. And I think that's true of politics. If you look at the whole thing, it's so overwhelming. You think this is just a great big mess. We're absolutely screwed, for want of a better word, and then you, the, the, sort of the riot doors come down and you don't want to engage anymore. But actually, almost certainly, locally, somewhere around you, uh, at some, some corner of the field, somewhere, not only is there something you can do that will make a difference, but you'll find that the people immediately around you are actually much more reasonable than the people you're seeing on television or on social media. And if that's true for you, that's probably true for everyone, which means actually the majority of people are pretty decent and reasonable if you engage with them properly.
1: Well, it's terrific. I mean, the, the book is absolutely terrific. I really enjoyed it and really enjoyed having a chat as well, albeit a slightly triggering trip down memory lane uh, as we read. Raphael Baer, uh guardian journalist and author of Politics, a Survivor's Guide. Really good to see you. Thanks for coming in. Thanks very much. And that's all we've got time for on today's episode. Do get in touch. Just email me matt at times.radio with any thoughts about what we've been discussing and hit subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. But for now, for me, Matt Jolly, it's goodbye.